0: Please, if you will, turn in your Bibles to our scripture reading, Luke chapter 15 verses 11 to 24, Luke 15, 11 to 24. Our sermon passage is 2 Samuel chapter 18 verses 1 to 33, so the the entire chapter, uh, uh, chapter 18 of 2 Samuel, but first, Luke 15, 11 to 24. Of course, this, you will recognize it instantly. It's the parable of the prodigal son. And this is, brothers and sisters, the word of God. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us, but you are worth ten thousand of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man who had told him, What, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there was nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor-bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, And for Joab restrained them. And he took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken up and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance he called it the pillar after his own name and it is called Absalom's monument to this day then Ahimaaz the son of Zadok said let me run and carry news to the king the lord has delivered him from the hand that the lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies and Joab said to him you are not to carry the news you may carry news another day but today you shall not carry you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead Then Joab said to the Cushite, go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said to Joab, come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, run. And Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, see another man running alone. The king said, he also brings news. The watchman said, I think the, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahamaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you? O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. This ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we again are thankful for your word and this portion of it, for these portions that we have read today. We're thankful for what it teaches us about the human condition, about our fallen world. But we are especially thankful, Lord, for what it teaches us about you. What we know about your will for your people. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us today through the preaching of your word. And so we ask that you would guide the words of the one who preaches that you would give ears to the ones who hear, that you would give us understanding and knowledge so that we know you better, so that we will worship you and glorify you all the more. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, in the last several chapters, as Absalom has grown in prominence in the history that's being narrated in 2 Samuel, we we see that there is no low to which he is unwilling to stoop. Absalom seemed to believe that what was done to his sister by his half-brother Amnon and what he perceived as his father David's complacence justified all of his ensuing behavior from killing his brother to leading a rebellion to trying to kill his father. So you would think that when Absalom at long last received his comeuppance, when he was subjected to the justice that he undoubtedly deserved, that all the people, including his father, would be overjoyed. And indeed, it seems that everyone but David was overjoyed. David, a man after God's own heart, according to God Himself, was Himself a very flawed man. But flawed doesn't quite capture the depravity of David's sins. During our time in First and Second Samuel, we have taken a warts and all look at David, and these two books offer plenty of warts for us to consider. And as we know, some of those warts led to the predicament that David has now found himself in, having to flee to the east of the Jordan River to escape Jerusalem ahead of Absalom's invasion. And in our passage today, we get a little bit of everything with David, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We see David earnestly desiring to go into battle, like in the days of old. Not since chapter 10 have we seen him going out to war with his army. It was a noble attempt. But of course, his men would not let him go because they rightly feared that he would be the sole target for Absalom's army. The bad. The bad. We see David ordering his men to deal gently with Absalom, his son, even though Absalom was bent on killing David and everyone who supported him. We see David giving in to the will of these men, not going out, becoming passive once again. The ugly. We see David weeping nearly to the point of hysteria over Absalom's death, even though God himself had willed for harm to come upon Absalom because he, Absalom, had dared to lift a hand against the Lord's anointed, something that David would never do when Saul was king. So as we work our way through the sermon today, I'd ask you to consider this thought. God will never permit his kingdom to fall. Because he loves each person in it. God will never permit his kingdom to fall. Because he loves each person in it. The sermon's got three points. The first, on the offensive. The second, an unexpected end. And the third, messengers of joy and sorrow. Again, on the offensive... Uh, An unexpected end, and messengers of joy and sorrow. So let's take a look at the first point this morning on the offensive. After Absalom, having been on the offensive over the span of several chapters, going back all the way to chapter 13, now David, through his men, takes the battle to Absalom. David and his people have been given refreshment, they have been given rest in Mahanaim, in the land of Gilead, and now they are ready to go to war. Verse 1 says that David mustered the men who were with him and set commanders over thousands and commanders over hundreds. And the three main commanders, the generals, as it were, for this army were Joab, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, and Ittai, the Gittite. And David himself wanted to ride out into battle at the head of his army. It seemed like the first gesture, gesture toward nobility that David has given in a very long time. He may have realized how complacent he had become and he wanted to change that. He also might have wanted to be present when Absalom and his armies met in battle, maybe even hoping that he could talk to his son, talk him out of fighting, talk him down from what he was doing. But the men would not permit it. They understood, I think wisely, that David was the chief target of Absalom and his army. And Absalom's army was much larger than what David was able to muster. And so they wanted to keep him safe. They knew what a terrible blow it would be to the kingdom if David were killed. They wanted David to stay in the city of Mahanaim. They wanted him to send help, provisions, weapons, more troops if possible. And that is what David did. He stood by the gate as the soldiers marched out of the city to go to war. He watched his army go. An army that, as king, he should have been at the head of. But David did give a command. He did give an order to his three generals in verse 5. Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And the author goes on to say that all of the people who were around heard this order to the three generals. And so David's army, led by Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, they went out to do battle against Israel, while David agonized over what might be the outcome while he waited back in Mahanaim. And verse 6 says that the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. Now most of the battles that we've read about in First and 2 Samuel have been fought out in the open, on open battlefields. Fighting in a forest is a completely different type of battle. Now the forest of Ephraim, it wouldn't have been a triple canopy rainforest like it was in Vietnam, but it was difficult terrain in which to fight. And verse 7 says that Israel was defeated in the forest of Ephraim, losing 20,000 men. Verse 8 contains this fascinating, fascinating line, "...the battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword." Perhaps it should have been named Fangorn Forest instead. The trees trees seem to be alive, but this phrase captures just how difficult the terrain was in which to fight. The United States Marine Corps earned one of its favorite nicknames in a battle in a forest. In the Battle of Belleau Wood in World War I in 1918, they were fighting against the German army there, and they earned the nickname Devil Dogs. It was meant to be a a derisive nickname for the Marines, but it was one that they took with great honor and pride, having defeated a German regiment there. This forest, it provided all of the advantage that David's smaller force needed to even out the odds, but the forest wasn't done with its devouring in verse eight. That leads us to the second point of the sermon, an unexpected end. Verse 9 says And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak and his head caught fast in the oak and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. Now, most of you probably know this. in Cartoons, in movies, a favorite visual for many years were characters riding horses, riding into a forest and being swept off of the back of their horse by a branch of a tree. Now, in this case, Absalom was riding a mule, and it's really, in some ways, it provides comical visuals for us in the movies, but in reality, for Absalom, it was not comical at all. It was humiliating for him. But he was on a mule, which was the royal mount of the king of Israel, and his neck became caught in the crook of a tree. He must have been looking behind him, looking to see if he had pursuers, on the way after him. His mule kept going forward and Absalom was left suspended several feet off the ground. The tree, in a sense, devoured Absalom too. A certain man, as verse 10 puts it, saw it and he told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in a tree. And Joab was incredulous. Why didn't this man strike Absalom to the ground, killing him? Joab tells the man he would have given him ten pieces of silver and a belt, a belt probably indicating some sort of higher rank. But the man flatly refused. The man showed great courage. He said, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded to you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake protect the young man Absalom. And then the man goes on to say that, in verse 13 that if he had killed Absalom, King David would have known about it because he knows about everything. And if he had done so, Joab, who wanted this man to kill Absalom, he would have stood aloof, meaning he would have just stood by while David had this man executed. This man knew that it wasn't his place to defy a command of the king. And Joab expressed his contempt for the man in verse 14, saying that he won't waste any more time on him. And then Joab took matters into his own hands. He's picked up three javelins and he thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still hanging in the tree. And ten of Joab's men surrounded Absalom and they struck and killed him. And that was it. Joab's reign, Absalom's reign was over. Joab blew the trumpet. And his troops stopped pursuing Israel. Joab and his men took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised a large mound of stones, and the men of Israel's army fled home. The forest devoured Absalom. Now Dale Davis, citing other scholars, makes the point that Absalom's burial is that of an accursed man. And he points to passages like Achan being buried under a pile of stones in Joshua chapter 7, verse 15. And the king of Ai in Joshua eight twenty nine, who was hanged in a tree and then covered with a large pile of stones. And there are several other Old Testament references which indicate, yes, being buried under a pile of stones. That is the burial of a man who is accursed. You see, Absalom had dared to raise a hand against the Lord's anointed, and he paid a severe price for it. And the author leaves an epitaph about Absalom in verse 18 saying that he had set up a monument for himself in the king's valley because apparently by that time his sons had had all died and it was the only way that Absalom believed he would be remembered. Now Joab's defiance of David's command, it probably raises some questions for some of you. Maybe all of you are wondering, wait a minute, how do I understand what Joab did? Is he the bad guy? Was Joab right or wrong to disregard what David had said? Well, this is one of those instances when both the young man who obeyed David's command and Joab who disobeyed, I think, were correct. The man, probably a junior foot soldier, acted according to his station and his knowledge. He was loyal and obedient to the king. He did what he was supposed to do. What Joab said that he should have done in striking Absalom down and killing him, that was above his pay grade. Joab's rank and station made him privy to more information. He knew that David's order not to deal harshly with Absalom was an unlawful command. He knew that Absalom would tear the kingdom apart. He understood that Absalom would never stop trying to kill David. Joab did what was best for the kingdom and for David as king, not what was best for David as a private individual, as a father. And that brings us to the final point of the sermon. This morning, messengers of joy and sorrow. After Absalom's death, after his burial under this mound of stones down in the pit to the ravine in the forest, Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok the priest, who was the one, one of the ones who'd been working in Jerusalem with his father to carry information back to David, he wanted to be the one to carry the news of, of Israel's defeat to David. But Joab knows that it would be best for this news to be delivered by someone who wasn't so invested in it. Joab might also have been looking out for Ahamaz's welfare in case David flew into a rage when he found out that his son had been killed against order. And so he tells Ahamaz that he can carry the news to the king some other time, but not this news, not on this day. And so Joab sent the Cushite as a runner to Mahanaim to tell David the news of this victory. The Cushite doesn't even get a name. He's not mentioned. Perhaps that's to show that the Cushite could come to an untimely and unfortunate end. But Ahimaaz insisted on going as well. And Joab told him in verse 23 to run. So Ahimaaz uh, took a path over the plain rather than through the forest of Ephraim, and he outran the Cushite. And verse 24 says that David was sitting between two gates, and the watchman went up to uh, the top above the gate so that he could see a little better. You may remember from our time in the book of Ruth that the gates to ancient cities were actually elongated openings. That had an outer gate and an inner gate and between those two gates there was a space where people could sit there were benches upon which men could sit there was a great deal of business that was conducted in the city at the gate and in that space was where david had positioned himself he was waiting there because there would be the place where he would get the news there was no doubt that he was anxiously awaiting news about the battle. But most importantly for him, he was awaiting news about his son. And the passage says that the watchman lifted up his eyes and he saw a single runner approaching. And he called down to David to let him know. And David said to the watchman, if he's alone, there is news in his mouth. Meaning that the one man, that one man running would mean good news for David. But then the watchman saw another man running. And he recognized The running style of the first man as Ahimaaz, which made David glad because he knew that Ahimaaz was a good man. In verse 28, Ahimaaz cried out to David that all was well. And when he reached David in the gates, he bowed before the king. He fell upon his face and he said, Blessed be Yahweh your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. But rather than rejoicing at this news, David asks about the only thing that really interested him. He asks about Absalom. This is the indicator that what Joab Joab had done was the right thing to do. David doesn't care about the kingdom. David only cares about his son. But as the Lord's anointed, the king of God's people, he can't do that. Not right now. He must have the kingdom as as his first priority. It's understandable that as a father he would be concerned about his son, but Absalom was more important to him than anything else. And in response to David's question, Ahimaaz equivocates. When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I don't know what it was. I didn't see, I don't know, was the way that... Ahamaz responded, but there's no way that Ahamaz did not know that Absalom had been killed. At that point, he was probably wishing he had listened to Joab and let the Cushite go first. Let him go alone, perhaps, to carry the news to the king. And around that time, the Cushite arrived and said to David, Good news for my lord the king, for Yahweh has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. Again, David reveals the priorities of his heart. When the first thing he asked the man was, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite did not mince words in response. May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. David then knew that Absalom his son was dead. The last verse of chapter 18 says, And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Now I am reluctant to criticize David too harshly here because he's doing what any father would do. He's crying out in lament over the death of his son. And this description of David waiting at the gate and seeing the runner made me think of the father in the parable of the prodigal son. Now, there are many differences, of course. These are not parallels. But it's possible that Jesus had our passage for 2 Samuel 18 in mind when he told that parable. The main difference, of course, is that Absalom never repented to his dying breath. He never repented. He refused to bend his knee to the king, the Lord's anointed, his father. He never asked his father, David, for, for forgiveness the way that the prodigal did when he came back. But it was clear, for better or for worse, based on David's actions at the gate, that if it had been Absalom running to David, David would have welcomed him with open arms and embraced him, the same way that the prodigal's father embraced him. And so I'm sympathetic to David. He did what any parent would do. He longed for the return of his son. Yes, David had his priorities completely out of whack. As king, he had to place the kingdom, God's kingdom, over his own interests, over his own family. David was not only a father, but he was the king over the United Kingdom of Judah and Israel, God's kingdom here on earth at that time. And he had forgotten this. He had become blind to the fact that Absalom posed an existential threat to the kingdom, humanly speaking. Being Absalom's father had blinded him to Absalom's hatred for him. Were it not for the fact that the Lord cared more about his kingdom than David did, Absalom would have destroyed it. So all told, it was good that David didn't get his way. Even though it meant that he was thrust once again into the throes of mourning. And in his mourning, in his weeping over the death of his son, David realized, I'm sure, that he was still, David was still suffering the consequences of his own sins and crimes. Those words uttered by the prophet Nathan back in chapter 12, verse 10, would never leave his mind. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. And this knowledge, too, must have added to his grief. In a sense, then, just like his brother who died just after his death, Absalom, too, died because of his father's sins. But as Dale Davis makes very clear in his commentary, this does not absolve Absalom from his own responsibility. Absalom, too, is guilty. Absalom, too, sinned. He is responsible. But David is too. And David has a prior responsibility because of his superior position. Now another son would die for the sins of others. But he would bear no guilt of his own. He had no responsibility for the death that he died. Jesus, the Son of God, died for our sins by taking them on himself on the cross Though he never sinned, he became a sin. In that sense, Jesus was a prodigal. He became a prodigal. He left his father's side. He did so according to the perfect will of his father. He came here to earth, he never once sinned a single time, and yet he became that prodigal son. Because he took our sins upon himself on the cross. In that sense, he was forsaken by his father. He suffered the vengeful wrath of his father for our sins, for your sins and my sins on the cross. He suffered the worst form of estrangement from his father. This father with whom he had enjoyed the closest of relationships, closer than any earthly father and son could have. And he did this, Jesus did this, so that each and every prodigal who returned to the Father in faith would be welcomed by the Father back into his kingdom. Jesus became a prodigal because you and I are prodigals. And he did this because he knew that we would never willingly return to him, just like Absalom. He did this so that you and I could come to him in faith and enjoy his kingdom for eternity. And that, brothers and sisters, is the good news of the gospel. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful because, but for your grace, we too would be the prodigal who never returned, who did not come back. And so we are thankful that your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, was willing to leave his position of authority and power at your right hand to come to earth. And though he never once sinned to die the death of a sinner because he took upon himself all of our sins. We, O Lord, are like Absalom. We would never have of our own wills come back to you. And so we are thankful, Father, that you sent your Son to come to us. We are thankful that by Your Spirit, in His work of causing us to be born again, that we have willingly embraced You. That we love You. And that we desire to do Your will. And so we pray that by Your Spirit we would walk in obedience all the days of our lives.